Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is the second part of a two-part series on OCD. And if you haven't listened to the last episode where Erin describes her incredible battle with contamination OCD, you should stop right here and listen to that. In this episode, we're going to kind of process and deconstruct what Erin did. And I feel super fortunate to have my OCD expert, Dr. Amy Indermule, in the room with me. And um, I worked originally with Erin for the first couple years and then referred her on to Amy, who did some has continued to do some amazing work with her. So, Amy, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Um, before we start talking about some of the details of Aaron's treatment, which I think was, a, was has been a really successful but also very um, illuminating and interesting treatment, I wanted to start with this idea about why is OCD so missed? Because one thing I've been seeing now in the 15 or so years I've been a psychiatrist I'm convinced it's the most misdiagnosis. I mean, I regularly have people come to my office, you know, with quote unquote anxiety, depression, panic. And then it becomes pretty clear after a few minutes and definitely after we do the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale that Mm -hmm. they've got severe OCD and it's been missed by oftentimes multiple therapists and doctors for years. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I do. I think there's a few things that contribute to that. One is the stereotype of OCD that's portrayed in media, in um, entertainment, the hand-washing, you know, the fear of germs and the hand-washing. And that is certainly one of the more common manifestations of OCD, but by no means the only one. And I think it's the more subtle or less known ones that get missed. Um, I also see that the same as you, where people come in and they have all these other diagnoses. And then I'm looking and I'm thinking, you, you have massive OCD. And I think maybe that's what's causing your depression or your panic attacks, or people often come diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And I think one of the misconceptions even among professionals is that OCD is very focused on one thing Mm -hmm. where it can be focused on anything. Anything can be an obsession. Even a benign thought can become a terrifying obsession. But if you don't inquire about those, folks with OCD are often very secretive and ashamed. So they may not volunteer it. They may be more ready to volunteer it with me because I'm known as an OCD therapist, but even then they'll say something like, this is going to sound really crazy and weird, but I can't help it. And there's a lot of reluctance to share that. So I think those are a couple of reasons is only looking at the stereotype and then not understanding that all these other things can be OCD symptoms and that patients are pretty secretive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you have a sense what types or flavors of OCD get missed the most? Because I, I agree with you. I think if it's sort of hand-washing contamination OCD, mm-hmm. families tend to see that. It's just harder to hide when you have cracked, bleeding hands and you're in the bathroom a lot. And Right. But I think you and I both know that that's just one small subset, and there's a lot of other types of obsessive-compulsive disorder that are much easier to hide, but cause as much or more distress. Mm -hmm. 
different types I see are harm OCD, so fears that that individual might murder someone, sexually molest someone, um, commit incest. These are pretty taboo thoughts, so people don't really talk about those. Kind of related to that category would be religious and blasphemous obsessions. I think about Jesus naked on the cross and what it would be like to have sex with him, and I can't tell anybody that. (laughs) Um, So things like that. Another common area is um, fears about being homosexual, and for people who are homosexual, fears about being straight. So it tends to be fear that I'm other than what I am. And then some OCD obsessions specifically are very bizarre, and they can look crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in the sense of psychotic. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've had family members call me and say, I think so-and-so that you're seeing is psychotic. I said, no, that's just their obsession. It sounds really strange. Yeah. So, What are a couple examples of that, of OCD that to, for observers looked psychotic? Um, There's two kind of broad categories, I would think. One is an obsession about a fear that can't happen, but there's the belief that it could happen. So an example of that might be, I'm afraid that I will get pregnant if I use a public bathroom. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't happen. So that sounds a little psychotic. The other would be things that just are bizarre, such as if I read this book about Hitler, I might switch souls with Hitler and Mm -hmm. become evil. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, those are some that look more psychotic. Mm-hmm. But as I explore, I'm like, your your thinking is pretty rational, except for these couple of areas that are obsessions. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't think you're psychotic. I think it's OCD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's, with you know, with OCD, and Aaron and I talked about this in the last mm-hmm. episode that one of the things that makes OCD so miserable is that nor well, very often there's a little part of you that knows this is kind of crazy, like that you're tapping or counting or checking or praying. Right. So 98, 99% of your brain saying you have to do this and mm-hmm. 0.8 or 1% is like, mm, this is really messed up. It doesn't make sense. Why are you doing this? But I can't help it is what mm-hmm. the person often tells me. Mm-hmm. I know it doesn't make sense, but I can't help it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your, I mean, do you have some favorite types uh, of OCD that you like to work with? I actually don't think about the different types of OCD Mm. too much Um, from my perspective as a therapist. One of the things I often say to my patients is the content of your obsession is irrelevant to me. It's very significant to you because that's what OCD is screaming in your brain. I'm much more interested in the fact that you have a scary thought and you do some kind of ritual to deal with that thought. Mm. I don't care what the thought is per se. That being said, some content areas are easier to do exposure for and are easier to convince the individual to do exposure for. So if a person has obsessions in a taboo content area, it's often hard for me to get them to go towards that content area Mm -hmm. because they feel like, even normal people wouldn't do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about the sort of your hes- hesitancy to think about subtypes because in 
psychiatry or DSM, everything likes you know, it's categorized and neat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's five types of this and six types of this. And, and um, yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth on, is it helpful to think about subtypes? But then you also see clinically that OCD is more like whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. You know, and Erin described that. Yes. Yeah, that um, she went from sort of counting obsessions and compulsions as a kid and mm-hmm. and then um, harm, OCD, fears of um, killing her baby intentionally or accidentally, and then moving on to full-on contamination. Right. So... Um, Yeah, I often tell people, we can play whack-a-mole for the rest of your life, or why don't we walk around behind the machine and unplug it? Like, why are we going to play this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Erin's treatment. Okay. So when I met her five years ago, she uh, was nearly completely disabled, and by her OCD was spending essentially every waking minute um, in desperate fear and trying to keep her child safe from herpes yes. um, viruses, and um, had tons of rituals. And got her started on some medication, which she talked about in the last episode. And I started some exposure therapy with her, which which helped. But she had a few months where she started to get better. Mm-hmm. And then she started getting worse. And I said to her, I think you got to go see Dr. Amy. I think you, you need to dive into this more. And then as Aaron and I laughed about in the last episode, which was not funny then, but the in, uh, I think it was 2007. To, uh, 2016 or 17, I um, did an exposure where we shared a drinking water cup. <laughs> so she drank out of it first, and then I drank out of it. Mm-hmm. And she didn't come see me. She, I think it was a year and a half. And wow. part, part, of the, <laughs> part of that was that she went to see you, thankfully. But I, you know, I basically did a 10 out of 10 exposure with her that was too much. You know, I was the Right. I was the coach that asked her to do something that broke her for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she came back a couple of years later and had been seeing you and had made some amazing strides. So I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about where she was when you met her, how you kind of formulated a treatment plan and what that looked like blow by blow. Sure. I first saw Erin in early 2017, and she was very severely incapacitated by OCD. As you said, she was spending most of her waking time having obsessions, engaging in compulsions, and she was doing a lot of avoidance, which can be a very overlooked compulsion. We usually think of compulsions as something positive you're doing. By positive, I mean an action you're taking. Um, And don't look at the compulsive avoidance and Aaron's avoidance was significant and in some really heartbreaking ways. She was not letting her daughter touch her face at all, not kiss her. She was very reluctant and hesitant to even let her daughter hug her or just engage in natural 
affection. Her daughter was just a toddler at this time. So that would have been a totally normal thing for her daughter to be doing. And it was pretty heartbreaking because Erin desperately wants to be a good mother. She is a good mother, but OCD was giving this obsession that if you do these things and your daughter gets the herpes, you will be a bad mother. And so ironically, OCD avoidance was keeping her from being the thing she wanted to be, which is a very affectionate, loving mother. She's always been a loving mother, but she couldn't have that physical affection with her daughter or with her spouse. So in the beginning, I did an assessment and I looked at all the areas where Erin was avoiding and engaging in compulsions. And um, I started educating her about exposure therapy, which you had already been doing. And she was pretty scared. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, 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 I left you a wounded patient to starve. <laughs> well, it actually worked because I was able to say, I'm not going to make you do anything. I can't, you know, and really work on building her motivation and kind of plugging into, well, what do you want? You know, and she said, I want to be able to let my daughter have a normal life. She was also avoiding taking her daughter to the park, taking her daughter to classes like swim classes or gymnastics classes or just typical things that kids do. And she said, you know, I don't want her to suffer because of what I'm going through. So she had a pretty good motivation at that point. And so we kind of constructed an informal exposure hierarchy of different things that she was going to do to face her fears. And then I coached her in some of the key elements to, I think, successful exposure therapy, which is we're always going to agree with your obsession. I don't care if it's true or not. We're always going to agree with it. We're not going to argue with OCD anymore. Just whatever it says, we agree with and we act like it's not true. And you have to do both those things at the same time. It's sort of like a little bit like dialectical behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. Like DBT is sort of... Mm -hmm. It's not either or, it's and. Right. Yeah. The obsession yeah. is true, but mm -hmm. you're going to act like it's not. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so we dove in pretty quickly. By the fourth session, Erin brought her daughter to my office. And um, this was actually one of the most beautiful moments of my therapy career is Erin was terrified to have her daughter there thinking, what's going to happen? So we tried to make it as untherapy-like as possible for the sake of her daughter. I just started talking to her daughter, got out some paper and some pens, and was having her color and draw. And Erin um, was engaging in her exposure task of thinking about giving her daughter herpes and what a terrible mother she is and agreeing with OCD. And at one point, Erin started crying. And her sweet, darling little daughter looked up, oh, mommy. And I just said, oh, your mom is learning to be super brave today and it's really hard. And she just crawled up in Erin's lap and started hugging her and kissing her face. And I was telling her, you're going to let this happen right now. And mm. she did. And I don't know how long it had been since oh. she had been able to have this kiss and this affection with her daughter. I think that was a turning point for her to realize I can do this. And there's something that makes it worth it. Yeah. It's like she'd been in a mental prison and a physical prison because what she most wanted was her daughter's touch. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't, 
she couldn't have her daughter's touch. No. Yeah. And I told her, this has to happen from now on. This wasn't just a one-time thing today. You have to do this every day with your daughter. Face this fear every day until it becomes natural and not a big deal. And she's been able to do that. That's amazing. Were there things that you asked her to do that she couldn't do in the exposure um, therapy? Because I'm, I'm guessing, you know, as you went along, you're trying to find things that are challenging but not overwhelming. Yes, um, I jump around in an exposure hierarchy because I don't want the individual to get the unintended message that the top of the hierarchy is something you can't handle. Mm-hmm. I tell people, I think you can handle any level of anxiety. The only reason I would not want to do something higher is because of the experience you described. Mm -hmm. If it's so high that you don't ever want to come back and see me. Mm -hmm. That's my only consideration. So we would jump around. Going from imaginal exposure, such as looking at pictures of cold sores, watching YouTube videos of people with cold sores, writing stories about how her daughter gets a cold sore and hates Aaron forever because she's done this to her. Those are imaginal exposures to in vivo exposures, which are things we do in real life, such as her daughter kissing her. There were a few in vivo exposures I encouraged her to do on her own that she was not able to do on her own. And in that case, I went into the community with her. She said you would do them first. Sometimes I, in the beginning, I will do them first. And then eventually I'll say, I'm not doing it first because that just becomes kind of a, a compulsion. Right. Oh, Dr. Amy did it, so it must be safe. Yeah, like a reassurance kind of, yeah. A reassurance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. So we will go to stores together occasionally and touch the things she doesn't want to touch. We went to Target and went down the lip care aisle and found the Abriva products. And I said... For cold sores. For cold sores. Yeah. And I you absolutely know that the people touching these have had cold sores or going to get cold sores. They, they have herpes. That's why they're buying this. You have to touch every box. Mm. And I remember us standing there for quite some time. And when we were in public, when I'm in public with a patient, I'm trying to appear as we're a couple of friends, acquaintances, whatever, hanging out here in the store together. And it's kind of my job to be the disguise while it's their job to <laughs> do the task that's yeah. terrifying them. Which must be quite a trick because just to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes um, slowly, reluctantly handling packages of cold sore medicine. <laughs> it, it can look awkward, yes. <laughs> yeah. And what are you? Do- what does that look like? So she, let's talk about Erin in particular. So yeah. she's trying to get to touch the box to hold them are you encouraging her are you just staying quiet are you available for questions i mean what's your role there Mm -hmm. in vivo in the aisle of the store i kind of have two roles 
one if I think people are around I'm going to start doing something that makes it look like we're there because I'm having an issue you know I might start pulling like multiple things off and being like do you think I should get this one or this one I don't know I can't decide <laughs> so that's kind of my disguise function wow. what, um, a, what a good wing woman you are <laughs> yeah <laughs> Also, depending on the individual, in Erin's case, this was relatively, this was probably six months into our treatment. So she had had some good successes under her belt, so I could be a little more pushy. Maybe I'll take something off the shelf and just hand it to them. Mm. What do you think about this one? Mm. Um, Kind of gently force them to do it. Um, In Erin's case, as I recall, I was just telling her, you can do this. You are brave. You are strong. You can handle any feeling that comes up right now. Yes, you are probably going to get cold sores and give them to all your family. That's true. However, I think you can handle this right now. Mm. So it's kind of a coaching role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about, she mentioned uh, on the last episode, going into a public bathroom and holding faucets until yes. she had enough you know, anxiety, relief, fear, extinction that she could do that. Mm-hmm. Were, you, were you in there with her? Sometimes, yes. Mm. And uh, sometimes that can be a little more awkward, just socially for my patients. <laughs> two people come out of a bathroom stall together. But yeah. Again, I'm ready with a, a laundry list of uh, kind of covers for that, if you will. But yes, I will. And in, as I recall, in that case, I did not touch anything first because she was far enough along. I said, I'm, I'm not going to give you this kind of reassurance. You just have to uh, hold the faucet. You have to stick your hand on the toilet seat. You have to sit on the floor. You have to touch every surface in this bathroom. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was really just coaching. Mm-hmm. Like You could do this. You're doing a great job. I'm so proud of you. Um, trying to give her cheerleading without giving her reassurance. Mm, that's a fine line. Mm-hmm. It can be a very fine line. What was the turning point for her? Do you have a sense when she, I mean, I think you mentioned one with her daughter being able to kiss her face. That's, that's an amazing story. That was huge. I think that was a turning point. I think going and handling the Abriva products mm-hmm. was a turning point because we did it and then I left and then she later confessed that she had engaged in some compulsions and then gotten really upset with herself and made herself on her own go back in the store and do some other things that made her anxious. And so in my mind, that was the turning wow. point of, I'm not just doing this because Dr. Amy is here saying, you have to do it. I'm doing it because I want to beat this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, at the end of the recording, Aaron said, oh, I forgot to tell the chapstick story. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, I'll ask Dr. Amy about that. So I'm always looking for uh, opportunities for in vivo exposures. I happened to be shopping in a store here in town, and um, 
went up to check out at the cash register and they had tester chapsticks. And I thought, who on earth has tester chapsticks? <laughs> this is perfect. only an in vivo or cd exposure therapist would think that (laughs) absolutely so um i told her about it in our next session and she just got this look of horror on her face (laughs) and she was like you're gonna make me do that aren't you i said i can't make you do anything but i think it would be a great idea (laughs) i think this is as close as we can get to facing your fear head on short of finding somebody with a cold sore and asking you to go kiss them. And I'm probably not going to do that. So she agreed to it. And we met at this store and um, we made several passes by the cash register, testing out the chapsticks. And by this time, this was probably um, about two and a half years into her treatment. And she had done really well. And then kind of stopped seeing me, stopped her medication for a while, and really had slid in back. And so at this point, we were helping her build back up to where she had been. So I was pretty strong. I'm like, you're a, Aaron, you're a treatment pro at this. This is not something you've never done before. We're doing it. And we just stood there, and I'm doing my kind of disguise prattle because <laughs> the cashiers are right there. And I'm like, what about this one? What about this one? And I had her try probably five or six tester chapsticks. I knew she was terrified, but she didn't let it show. She really just went with it and she habituated pretty quickly to Mm -hmm. that experience. And that was another huge turning point for her, I think. Yeah. And she described um, in my talk with her that what was so would have been so horrible in that moment was not what I think a lot of people would fear is who I'm going to get cooties or germs that are on these, but that she was going to leave herpes virus remnants on those mm-hmm. and infect other people. Uh, oh, yes, that's her, one of her big fears, and that's pretty common in OCD is the fear I'm going to harm someone else more than that I'm going to be harmed. So, yeah, she spread her germs around well. We talk about that. Um, when I'm doing an exposure with someone, I am very careful not to provide reassurance, to say, this is safe, this is fine, there's low risk, anything like that. I'm saying, I can't believe you're such a horrible person. How could you be doing this? I mean, I know it was my idea, but I think I have really stupid ideas and you're the one going along with it. And oh, by the way, you definitely have to go home and kiss your daughter and your husband full on. There's no... There's no escaping from this. You're Mm -hmm. a terrible person and you're going to do this thing. Mm -hmm. Even though... um the treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention. Um, and meds are an adjunct, I think. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, and this may be uh, observer bias because I'm a psychiatrist, but it seems like in general OCD is pretty chronic, that most of the folks I have who, who do very successful exposure therapy do the hard work of that. Most of them still stay on meds long term. I mean, what's, what's your experience? Because 
I'm guessing you might have a different subset of people. Do you see people who do enough exposure that they get off their meds or? I do see some. I see a fair number of people who, for a variety of reasons, don't want to take meds or mm-hmm. can't take meds. And they do very well with exposure therapy, most of them. Mm-hmm. So I see all kinds. I have seen some people who've been able to successfully get off their meds, and I've seen some people who have tried, and I'm the one saying, you really need to call your psychiatrist to get mm-hmm. back on your meds. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, I have a lot of metaphors for it, but sometimes I tell people in terms of OCD, like meds, like if exposure therapy is, you know, walking the coals, that the the meds are like, you know, the... the heat resistant socks, you know, or the mm-hmm. flip flops, like you're still going to feel a ton of heat, right. but, but it, they very well might get, might make it much more doable for you to do what is actually the treatment for OCD, which is to do exposure response prevention. I would agree with that. I would say for some people, it makes their obsessions a little less sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they're able through exposure therapy to get some detachment from their thoughts more Mm. easily and for some people it kind of turns down that fire alarm in the brain enough that they can engage in exposure therapy Mm -hmm. it seems like with many things we see in mental health like with depression anxiety and grief and adjustment there's a lot of different ways to help people heal and i think when they look at psychotherapy efficacy studies you know for a lot of kinds of things that people would come see a therapist for the the modality doesn't seem to matter nearly as much as the trust and the connection and the repair of empathic failures Mm -hmm. but my sense is i want to check in with you amy is my sense is ocd is different that you actually need to do this therapy for ocd that all these other schools of psychotherapy and um, models and ways of thinking about the mind don't do anything and and maybe part of that is because it's not it doesn't really respond to cognitive intervention as much Mm -hmm. as behavioral intervention yeah i i see this a lot where people come to me after seeing therapists who provide different types of therapy and i know some of these therapists they're great well-qualified therapists but unwittingly, a lot of the other treatment modalities actually feed OCD. Yeah, could you say more about that? I'm really interested in that. Yeah. So, yeah, the cognitive modalities are a good example. So um, you might do what we would call cognitive restructuring in a cognitive therapy. You might say, well, this thought is a bit distorted. Let's examine the evidence. Let's, let's ask some experts. You know, let's get some more information and see if we can kind of change this thinking pattern. Most of my patients have been doing that for months, <laughs> years. Yeah. Sometimes their therapists have been doing it with them for years. You cannot logic or cognitively restructure your way out of an obsession because the obsession always comes back, well, what about this? What about that? You just can't do it, which is why I say, okay, you're in an argument with this obsession because there's that little part of your brain that knows this isn't really correct, Mm -hmm. but you can't help it. And so you're always arguing with it. You know, I probably won't get AIDS if I touch the doorknob. It's not that likely that you could get AIDS from touching the doorknob. (laughs) Okay. 
OCD is the master debater, the master arguer. You will never, ever, ever win the argument. If, if saying, yeah, you're not going to get AIDS from touching the doorknob worked, you would have been cured the first time you had the thought, right? <laughs> so That'd be a cool trick. Yeah. So, um, so I've talked with cognitive therapists who will say, you know, we've been having this conversation for two years and try to gently say, so you've been doing a compulsion for two years. Good. Let's not do the compulsion anymore because that's feeding OCD. Other treatment modalities may do the same thing. Like um, maybe more psychodynamic might try to explore the past and look for, you know, the underlying connections and increase awareness of the unconscious impulses. Well, if somebody has an obsession that they might murder their spouse, they've probably spent a lot of time doing that already. Do I secretly not like my spouse? I don't know. I think I really love them. And just this whole kind of figuring it out mental compulsion Mm -hmm. that is often overlooked as a compulsion, that's also not going to help. It's just doing compulsions. And compulsions feed OCD. The other treatment modality that um, I think is a problem is anything that smacks of relaxation because um, it's usually unsuccessful (laughs) mostly, but also it continues to give a message that I'm trying to counter, which is, you're right. Your anxiety is a massive problem. You really should get rid of it. And I'm always saying, you can handle your anxiety. You're a brave, strong person, and there's not a level of anxiety you can't handle. You can face it, and you can handle this anxiety. the exact opposite message isn't it so you're having you're having terrible obsessions and so a lot of therapists right would help you with finding ways to self-soothe or relax or be mindful or just um Mm -hmm. or a lot of people are using alcohol or weed or whatever to just try to absolutely versus what you're saying is like no you're actually a badass yeah exactly and, and you you can move into that yes um Yes, I like that. <laughs> That's what I try to tell people. Um, I use a lot of martial arts analogies and things like, wait, do you want to hide from this or do you want to say, bring it, I can take it. Mm. And that's where people really get their power. Even in doing exposures, I've seen people come to me and they've tried exposures, but they do their exposures in a kind of psychic cringe like Mm -hmm. i'm doing this but it's horrible and i'm just gonna try to endure it whereas i'm saying no let's jump in an analogy i often use is the process of habituation is like getting into a hot tub and most people recognize when i first got in the hot tub it was super hot and then i sat in it for a few minutes and it feels very nice it i've gotten used to it Mm -hmm which is habituation. You get used to it. But I will tell people, well, okay, if you stand on the side of the hot tub and dip your toe in every five seconds, it's always going to feel hot, (laughs) unbearably hot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The only way that you can get used to the hot tub is to get in the hot tub and stay in it. You can choose to do that gradually. You can go feet, 
lower legs, upper legs, kind of ease your way in. That's fine. That's an exposure hierarchy. You can, if you want to, just jump right into the hot tub and sit in there and be really, really hot until you get used to it. And I always want to teach people, you can handle sitting in the hot tub until you get used to it. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, um, the episode I did um, for Back from the Abyss called Why It's So Hard to Find or Be a Good Therapist. And one of the things I talked about in that is it's much easier to find a therapist who will hold you and soothe you and calm you and help you downregulate than to find someone like you, like Dr. Amy, who's saying, get in the hot tub. You can do it. It's very hot. Get in. It's, it's to a walk challenge. Into, yeah, to go into anxiety and not, mm-hmm. um, it takes a special level of, extra level of confidence in the therapist to say, no, we're, you have a ton of anxiety and that's okay. When I started, I remember thinking inside, okay, I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm really not sure this is the right thing to do. <laughs> this seems like a horrible thing to do. Um, oh, and okay, yeah, I want to make you more anxious. Good. Okay, you're anxious. Let's be more anxious. It seemed like the absolute wrong thing to do as a therapist. Yeah. Um, that can be even worse when you have obsessions, well, such as Aaron's. I'm a bad mom. Erin is a lovely mom. Erin, if you're listening, you're a terrible mom. But (laughs) for me to say, you know what? I think you're a bad mom. And to do that with such a straight face that it spikes that person's anxiety. When, of course, inside, all I want to do is say, you're a great mom. Are you crazy? No, you're a lovely mom. You're the best mom I've ever said. You know, it's like, it's taken a lot of practice in realizing this works. Yeah. And it's also taken learning to uh, cheerlead in ways that aren't reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is such, it's such uh, gratifying, meaningful work to, to work with OCD and do exposure. But I think you're describing why most therapists are not doing it. Mm-hmm. Because one, it seems counterintuitive. Shouldn't therapists be providing comfort? And two is you, you have to turn it up. You have to turn up the heat on people. Mm-hmm. It's more like being a coach in some ways. I mean, mm-hmm. it's because coaches will say, no, you can do 10 more push-ups and oh, I like it or whatever. You it, can run more, one more time and you might throw up and do another lap. And It is like that. And I've actually had a patient throw up and I was like, you're doing a great job. <laughs> um, it is like that, but it's interesting. I have a hard time conveying this message to family members who need to do the same thing. Mm. There was an individual I saw who would seek reassurance a lot from family members. And they having loving family members who want to ease their distress and help them with their understanding of the world will say, no, this thing you're afraid of can't happen a thousand times a day. <laughs> Until finally one day, this individual said, you know... I keep asking you and I shouldn't, but you keep saying it'll be okay. And I feel worse and worse and worse. And I asked Dr. Amy and she says, yes, that's going to happen. And I feel better. <laughs> like That's why it works. But yes, it is very counterintuitive and very the opposite of what you're trained to do as a therapist is when even patients will call me in distress. I'm sure if other therapists were listening to my end of the conversation, they would freak out. <laughs> and this patient is calling me in crisis. I'm like, 
have you forgotten you're a terrible person? You're a horrible person. You're the worst person I've ever met. Now remember that. And they're like, okay, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Back to Aaron for a second. Mm-hmm. When we finished recording, I asked her, hey, are you still seeing Dr. Amy? She said, oh, yeah, I see her weekly, and and I still have OCD. I, I still have these obsessions, and, mm-hmm. and, and I realized this is an ongoing thing, my OCD and my treatment. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty common. What I tell people is I can't get rid of your obsessions. I don't know how to do that. Everybody has obsessions. Our minds are constantly generating all kinds of bizarre thoughts. I just can't do that. You're always going to have them. I can help you not engage in compulsions. I can help you function again by stop avoiding things. And I can help make those thoughts less mm, engaging less likely to capture your attention and suck you in, but I can't get rid of them. So Erin still thinks about cold sores and herpes. She's always going to, unless OCD decides to present her with a new content area, Mm -hmm. but she's always going to have obsessions. She's probably going to have them less and they're going to be less distressing, but they're always there. It's chronic. Yeah. Yeah. I think of, I often tell people with OCD, you have a sticky brain. Mm-hmm. And some people seem to just stick on the same, as you said, content area. Hers has been herpes virus for years. But mm-hmm. other people, the content area changes rapidly, but the sticky brain continues. Right. And that does seem yeah, very chronic. Some people just ha- have a sticky brain. They do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could figure out a way to <laughs> relieve that for them, but I don't know it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's been so great to have you here. This is so fun. This is actually the first time um, I've ever done this, to sit down and sort of talk about someone who's been uh, on the podcast and told their story and and collaborate and put our heads together and do sort of a post-game, like, yeah, why did she get better? And what, you know, what was her role in that and your role in that? And I also hope this is helpful. A lot of therapists listen to this podcast and mm-hmm. just this idea that OCD is a different beast and that yeah. the standard sort of psychotherapy techniques in schools and um, cognitive strategies don't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun to do and I'm really grateful that Erin agreed to this. I think it took a lot of courage, but she's been spending several years developing her courage and I give her a lot of kudos for that. I think she's a very brave, heroic person. Yeah, so do I. Way to go, Aaron. Yeah. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson who does our sound. 
and thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness. <laughs>